we begin a new series that we've entitled Ready, a series that we are focusing in on Paul's earliest letters that he wrote to any of his churches, the letters of First and Second Thessalonians. I want to help you and make you feel a little better. By the time we're done with this series, in the month of May, you will be wearing shorts, okay? So be encouraged with that. Winter, and it's not been a hard winter at all, quite frankly, uh, but we're going to be in this passage for all of our winter and into spring. Around Mother's Day, we'll be finishing up this series, and we're going to be focusing in in the next four months on these two books of the Bible where we will learn what it means to be ready, what it means to be ready. For, for many of us this morning, we weren't ready for church, right? We got up this morning and, and we got up a little late and the kids didn't cooperate as we wanted to and, and we don't feel real ready by the time we get to church. And maybe you'll feel that way tomorrow when you're rushing to get back to work and, and rushing to get the kids back to school. But the Bible tells us we are to be ready at all times. And First and Second Thessalonians will remind us that there is much for us to be ready for, ready for trials and tribulations that may come, ready for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ, ready to live lives of holiness. And what we're going to learn in this series is that when we're ready, when we are ready for whatever the Lord is going to send our way, then we will have strength for today and hope for tomorrow as the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, reminds us of. We'll have everything we need when we position ourselves to be ready. And what a great time to start a series on readiness by beginning in the first Sunday of the year. But here's the problem. As we look to this study, uh, we want to build a strong foundation. We want to introduce the text, but here's the problem. Uh, as, As we address an introduction sermon, they are one of the hardest sermons to preach as a pastor. You have two variables or two uh, um, spectrums you can find yourself falling between. Number one, I could preach the entire series in one sermon and we could be done. Or I could preach nothing and you wonder what in the world are we going to be talking about. And so I'm praying and I hope you'll pray with me that we'll strike a balance and and be able to be a a blessing this morning for us preparing us for what is going to happen in this series. I'd also encourage you, it's not that long Take some time in the coming weeks to sit down and in one sitting, read the books of First and Second Thessalonians. It should only take you about 20 to 25 minutes to be able to read this passage and read it as the original hearers heard it for the first time and apply it. Also, as Steve said, encourage you to be a part of our small groups. We're ahead of the, the text that's before us on Sunday morning. We get together as individuals and then we get together as groups all throughout the Fox Valley area to study uh, the text before us and involve ourselves in fellowship. But the verse before us is the first one. Uh, Notice in your Bibles, here's what it says. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and I ask that you would uh, meet us this first Sunday of the year. Father, I pray that uh, we would be ready for all that this year has in store for us. Let us recognize, as is recorded in the letters before us, that you are in charge, you are in control, whether in the good or the bad or even the ugly, Lord, you have a plan and you are executing that plan with precision and perfection. So our job, Lord, is to be in the center of that plan, to be in the center of your will, 
And I pray we will do it with gladness and sincerity of heart so that we may bring you glory and honor as a result. In Christ's name we pray, amen, amen. Well, I'm going to do a couple things this morning. This will seem more like a history lesson than it will per se a sermon, but I believe that it is so vastly important that we invest some time getting to know and understand why in the world Paul would write these two letters to this group of people in the moments and times that they found themselves in. And so this morning, we're going to bounce back and forth from the passage that you have in front of you, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm going to give you another passage I want you to turn to, put something there so we can quickly get back and forth to it. And that is we're going to start in Acts 15. Acts 15, if you have a pew Bible, that's page 924. So we're going to be going from Acts 15 and the passages around that uh, passage in Acts, and then we're going to go back to 1 Thessalonians. But as we approach 1 and 2 Thessalonians, we uh, come to hear the heart of a pastor who loves his people, who loves how they're serving, who loves to brag to others about what they are doing. Uh, Many times you will hear me, and I hope you hear it more and more, that not only do I love my children, but I am proud of what my boys are doing. They're not perfect boys by any stretch of the imagination. You know that as much as I do. But they are good boys, and and I want to encourage them and encourage others by telling them how proud I am, whether on the athletic field or in the halls of academia or or with regards to character, that that I am proud as their father to tell others of what they are doing and how they are serving their Lord even in small ways. This is what the Apostle Paul is doing to the church at Thessalonica. He's gushing over the love he has for this young church And how he sees them as a blessing, not only to himself, but a blessing to all those who come in contact with them. Now as we approach this, we've got to look at this letter and come to some following understandings. First, we have to involve ourselves in being reacquainted, reacquainted with the person who wrote the letter. We are told in in verse 1, a singular name at the beginning of it, Paul, Paul. Now, for you who have been around uh, the uh, church for a long time, you know the accolades of this man, Paul. But to help you get an understanding this morning of, of who he is and what he's all about, let me set the table for you on what's happening. We are 18 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 18 years. On December 27th of this last year, Amanda and I celebrated uh, our wedding which took place right here. 18 years ago on December 27th, we were standing here in this building, in this place, uh, giving vows to one another and, and, and being married. 18 years. That, now, for many of us, we don't know what we were doing in 1997, but I remember very, very vividly what was taking place at that time. There was a significant moment. Well, for the disciples, 18 years had passed since some major things had taken place. They had met Jesus. Jesus had called them to to follow him. And they had learned from their uh, Savior for, for three years. And they would watch their Savior, this teacher, this man that they loved, go to the cross and die 
They become disheartened. And then we learn that because uh, Jesus' promises are true, he said he would be raised from the dead, and he was. And their faith was filled as he, as he showed them his hands and his feet and, and, and taught them the, the things of the kingdom after his death, burial, and resurrection. For 40 days he walked and talked with them, was seen by 500 or more men at, at a singular time. Their lives would never be the same. And Jesus gave them a call. And for the last 18 years up to this point, the disciples are doing exactly what they were called to do. They were called, one of Jesus' last commands was to go uh, and preach the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the world. You're going to be my witnesses, he says in Acts 1.8. And so that's exactly what they've been doing for the last 18 years. Uh, fanning the flame of the gospel, not only in their hometown of Jerusalem, but into the uttermost parts of the world. And we find ourselves now moving farther and farther out in the sphere of where the gospel has gone. We're no longer in Jerusalem. We're no longer in Judea. But we're going to find ourselves moving in not only into modern-day Turkey... But now, as we're going to learn in the letters of First and Second Thessalonians, into the northern part of Greece. So the gospel is expanding. But, but what we're going to learn is that it's not Peter, it's not James, it's not John, or any of the original 12 who this letter is going to be written by. It's written by Paul. Paul was not one of the original disciples. In fact, he says that he was an apostle of an abnormal birth. Not an abnormal physical birth, but he was given the office of apostle through an extraordinary uh, encounter with Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 9, we are told that this man Paul, that his name wasn't even Paul his entire life, but it was Saul. He was born Saul of Tarsus. And he was a man uh, who was devout in all things of the Jewish culture and religion. He was so devout that he hated this new sect of believers called Christians. And as a young rabbi, as a young uh, priest in the, in the temple courts, he was a man who was given the charge to eradicate Christianity. In many ways, he was doing what ISIS is doing today in the Middle East and in other places in our world, eradicating Christianity once and for all. Well, on a journey to Damascus, with the vision and the heart to, to kill and imprison Christians for the preaching of the gospel, he encounters Jesus on his way to Damascus. And as he encounters him, we learn that this hate-filled individual who is hell-bent on, on, on uh, destroying Christianity encounters Jesus Christ. And in a Damascus second, he turns from being a hater of the gospel to being a recipient of one. He would meet Jesus Christ, see him face to face, and he would bow the knee to Jesus. What a great reminder this morning that if the hate-filled uh, Saul of Tarsus in a moment can come and bow the knee to Jesus, then listen, that jerk that's in the cubicle next to you, that family member who's so cold to the gospel can bow the knee in that moment as well. None of us. None of us in all of this world are too far for the grasp of the gospel and the evangelism from our Father in heaven. So we have this Saul who, who bows the knee and is introduced now to us as a new man with a new name. He's given the name Paul. Uh, so, so we come to learn about this man and we learn he's an apostle. We're not told that in, in 1 Thessalonians, but in all of his other letters he announces himself as the apostle. 
one who is given the charge to be a leader and, and teacher of the fledgling churches that have been birthed. Now, it, it, we are told that this apostle Paul, uh, his name is one that literally means small. Paul was small. Now, we don't know why he was given this distinction or this name, but many times names defined who you were or, or explained something about you. And so many early church historians believe that Paul was a short man, a diminutive man, uh, who was uh, not all that awe-inspiring. In fact, one church historian uh, put it this way. He said, Paul was a diminutive man, not given to good looks or a man of great eloquence. He was a simple man who was not suitable for the king's court, but God would use the foolish things of the world like men like Paul to shame the wise. Again, a reminder that God uses small and ordinary people to change the world by his grace. And, and, and Paul would be used to further the gospel more than any other individual in all of scripture and probably all of human history. Paul would be the one who would pen more of the New Testament than any other individual. And so we are indebted, probably second only to Jesus Christ, to the Apostle Paul. It is Paul who's going to write this letter. But notice, we know the Apostle, notice his associates. Notice the associates that are with him. It says Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. As you look and read the letters of Paul in the New Testament... Even a child in a very casual reading of the text will come to a place that they will recognize one truth about the Apostle Paul, and it's the following, that Paul never served as a Lone Ranger Christian when it came to ministry. He always had a team of people with him. We see that in his introductions to each of his letters, that he's always writing with someone else at his side. We also recognize in the... Uh, in the end of many of his letters, that he stops and gives thank yous to dozens of people uh, who have served with him well. He never did it by himself. And we are a church that isn't driven by one person doing all the ministry, but hopefully, just as we saw in the All In campaign, that it takes an entire church to do the ministry, the gospel work that has been called upon this body of believers by God himself. And so we see that Paul's got friends. He's got ministry partners who are working and serving alongside him. The first one is Silvanus. Silvanus. Uh, for those that don't know that name, it's the proper name of a man named Silas. Silvanus literally means a man of the forest. Uh, Sylvan means woods or, or many trees. Uh, to help you understand where we get this word, one of our states has the name Sylvan in it. Do anybody want to take a guess? Pennsylvania. Hey, we got some, Pastor Steve's got a $5 gift card for each of you who said that. So see him after the service. Okay? Pennsylvania. The woods of William Penn. And so this man must have been born in a forest. I don't know. But maybe he looked like a tree. We're not sure. Okay? But his name was one or a man of the woods. He is spoken of a dozen different times or so in the scriptures. Many of them just simply saying his name. How encouraging it must have been for, for this man, Silas, who wasn't known for a lot, 
uh, to be able to see his name and hear his name read when letters were read out loud in the churches. If you've ever been in the newspaper or learned that you were at a, at a very noteworthy event and you know that the paper is going to talk about it or the news is going to talk about it, uh, you always look forward to hearing your name or seeing your name in print. And, and Sylvanus or Silas isn't in the newspaper, but even greater, he is found within the canon of Scripture. What do, what do we know about this man? We don't just simply know him as a person that just simply lived But he was a man of great character and a man of great abilities. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 15. Now we're going to go to Acts 15. And in Acts 15, we learn a little bit about Silas. In Acts 15, we we know the context is that the church is going through great growth in the area around Jerusalem. The disciples have ministered to the land of Jerusalem and now are moving out into Judea and seeing people, not only Jews, but Gentiles come to know Christ. It creates a crisis of faith. What do we do with our Christianity if a Gentile comes into our midst and accepts Jesus Christ? Where do our customs as Jewish people begin and end, and where do the new customs of a Christian come into play? And they began to have questions and quarrels amongst them. What was required to be a believer? And so the church gathered its leaders, the apostles and elders of these various churches together in Acts 15 to be a part of the first council of churches, if you will, the Jerusalem council. James, the apostle James, leads this. And the apostle Paul is there with Peter and John and others. And they have this question of how are we to minister to these Gentile believers? They come up with a plan. And they tell the Gentiles what what is required of them uh, to be followers of Jesus Christ. Abandoning many uh, Jewish traditions that they once thought were imperative to be a Christian. They abandon them so that uh, every tribe, tongue, and nation can enter into the kingdom of God. This is in this moment where we see Silas. Notice in your text in Acts 15, starting in verse 22, it says that, It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul, there's Paul, and Barnabas. They sent Judas and and Silas, notice, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings, since we have heard that some Persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. Silas is given at this point in the church's history the most important information to send out to the churches. And notice what it says about these four men, including Silas. They are men who have risked their lives for the sake of the gospel. How great would it be if the only thing that God ever says about you is that you risked your life for the gospel? You don't need to write chapters about me you don't need to, uh, to tell people of all my, my personal achievements. Let me tell you something. If my tombstone says, this man risked his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ, I will die a fulfilled and contented man. Here is what is announced. 
regarding Silas. Many church scholars believe that he was one of the first elders affirmed by the congregation and apostles. In fact, we are told that he would join up with Paul. Notice in in Acts 15, go down to verse 36. How does he get into Paul's missionary team? In verse 36, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So they've gone and traveled to each of the churches, and Paul says, hey, let's go back and let's start growing these churches. Let's start teaching these churches what it means to, to be maturing believers in Christ. But Barnabas, verse 37, wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them and had not gone with them to the work. So uh, Barnabas, who's an encouraging figure, he, he wants to take a young man named John Mark who had quit on an earlier missions trip. And Paul says, hey, wait a minute, man. Once bitten, twice shy. Listen, Paul, or John Mark, he's not ready for prime time. Uh, we need to let him season a little bit more because when we were in the thicket, of ministry, he took off running. And he's not ready to serve and, and honor God in this capacity yet. Let's leave him at home. And notice what the text says. A sharp disagreement, in verse 39, uh, arose between them. So they separated from each other. It was such a big thing. And what, again, a picture that we as Christians will at times have sharp disagreements with, every, with one another. Even the best did, Paul and Barnabas. But they deal with it. And they come to an agreement, even though they disagree on on John, they agree that they're both called to take the ministry to the uttermost parts of the world. Barnabas takes Mark, verse 39, and Paul chose Silas and departed, having commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and they went through Syria, strengthening the churches. And so here we have Paul and Silas now going out on their journey. And so we have this man, Silas, a reputable man, a man, leading man of the church who's risked his life for the kingdom. Notice the next name, Timothy. Timothy, we just stay in in Acts chapter 15. In fact, turn to Acts 16 right there. Paul comes to Derbe and to Lystra. And there was a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. His father was a Greek. He was an unbeliever. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered them for observance of the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Timothy, Timotheos in the Greek, is a young man Uh, who Paul seems to gravitate to very quickly. A man who is born into a mixed uh, uh, faith home uh, from mixed backgrounds. Your pastor's name is Timothy because I have a mother who is European, Western, and a father who's Middle Eastern. That's the reason for my name. That was the reason it was given to me. And likewise, as my namesake, Uh, we find Timothy as one in a mixed uh, marriage relationship as as his parents. And and he is one who is taught uh, from the earliest points the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it seems to take hold. And as a young man, he seems to turn heads, even the head of the apostle Paul. Now, he wasn't a perfect man. He was a timid man that we learn who had a weak stomach. 
In fact, he is told numerous times to remedy the weak stomach with all sorts of remedies, one including even drinking of wine to settle it. What we learn about Timothy is his timidity would at times cause trouble by not allowing him to confront people, especially as a young pastor serving in the city of Ephesus, where the letter of Ephesians comes from. So Paul would have to write uh, two letters to Timothy himself with words as to what it means to be a strong pastor. And we would see that this young man would grow in maturity, and with the help of the Apostle Paul, his spiritual father, the church at Ephesus, under the leadership and pastoral vision of Timothy, would grow in number and maturity. And so here we have Paul, his two men with him, and they embark on Paul's second missionary journey. And it would begin, listen, it would begin with a vision called the Macedonian call. Keep going in in the book of Acts, because it's unveiling all that's taking place. In Acts 16, starting in verse uh, 8, it says, uh, or in verse 9, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel there. And so Paul gets this vision, a vision of a man who's standing before him. And it's a man, I don't know how he knows, maybe he had the Macedonian soccer shirt on or something. We don't know how he knows he's a man from Macedonia. Maybe they had a certain look to him. But he sees this man from Macedonia. And the man says, come and and preach to us. Come and and help us where we're at. And Paul uh, says, hey, it wasn't bad pizza that I had. This is a calling from God himself. And so there's enough there that he says, God is calling us to not go to Asia Minor, Turkey, but to go to Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. And so they uh, depart on that. And notice, we, we know now where they're going. We know who he's going with. But here's the thing I want you to add this morning. Under associates, write their adversity. I added that after the fact. And look with me how the journey goes. In fact, go ahead and throw up the slide so we can see it. So you can see from this slide that uh, they begin in the city of Antioch, which is in modern-day Syria. And they begin to head into, uh, which is modern-day Turkey. Derby, Lister, Iconium, Antioch, and Troas are all a part of modern-day Turkey. And they are given this vision in Antioch to go to the other part of the world, the part of the world that they had not been to, which is Greece. Now notice what happens when they get to Uh, the left-hand side, if you will, of the map in Greece. We are told in Acts 16 that they follow the calling and they set out, verse 11, from Troas, making a direct voyage to Neapolis. And there, so you see Neapolis, and from there they go to the city of Philippi where the letter of Philippians is written later. And what happens in Philippians? They preach the gospel and a very prominent woman in the city of Philippi comes to know Jesus with much of her household. Her name's Lydia. And because of that, a church is birthed in Philippi. And then around that time, as they're starting to see converts in Philippi come to know Jesus Christ, a a woman, as they're walking, a young woman who's possessed by demons and has been used for lucrative gain by the masters because she had some sort of fortune-telling ability, comes to Paul and begs for him to have the demon that she has within her exercised. 
And Paul, by the grace of God, is given the strength and the gift to exercise that demon. And what does that do? You would think that they would give a parade. People are coming to know Jesus, and people are being, demons are being cast out from them. What a great day. What a great opportunity. You're, you're having converts, and God's using you to do great things. This must have been awesome. The three of them must have been high-fiving. Man, God is good. Everything's great. They're going to give us a key to the city of Philippi. No, that's not what they do. Notice in Acts 16, what happens in verse 19 of Acts 16. But when her owners of the, the young demon-possessed woman saw that their hope of gain was lost, they seized Paul and Silas, didn't give him keys to the, to the city. They dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they were brought there to the magistrates, they said, these are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore their garments off. They were, they were laid naked. And they were given orders to be beaten with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they were thrown into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, the jailer put them into the inner prison, fastening their feet in the stocks. All right. The Lord gives you a call. Think about if you're Timothy and Silas for a moment. You're following Paul, the great apostle Paul. And he says, the Lord has given me a vision. We need to go to Macedonia. And they must have been like, yeah, Paul, you're great. This is right. Look at all this great things happening. I wonder if during the beatings, and put yourself in, your, in their shoes for a moment, you're getting beaten. If I was there, I know what I'd be saying to Paul. Paul, are you sure Macedonia was it? Are you sure you got it right? Are you sure it wasn't Montana or somewhere else? Somewhere else it starts with an M? Because we're getting the snot kicked out of us, and i got to be honest with you, it isn't much fun. But we know God uses trials and tribulations for a reason. So they're put into prison. They're beaten. Beaten to uh, an inch of their life. Thrown into the inner uh, prison. They're chained up. And, and if you are like me, we would have found in Acts chapter 16 that they would be whining. They would be pleading their case to go back home. But Acts 16 tells us that about midnight, Verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Wow. If that doesn't shock you, if that doesn't impress you, then something's wrong. You're not understanding what's taking place. Beaten to an inch of their life, and instead of getting angry with God, they praise him. Amidst great adversity. And God uses it. There's a great earthquake that takes place. The gates are, the, the, the chains are fall off their, their bodies. It's a thing of the Lord. The doors are opened up, and all of the prisoners could have run for their lives and run for freedom. But something had transpired in the prison that night where Paul and Silas had changed the hearts of the prisoners, that they were found free in the eyes of the Lord, and they recognized that they were still prisoners under the watchful eye of the jailer. The jailer's freaking out. He knows his prison has been set free, fearing that everybody's gone. He's ready to commit suicide. And Paul says, don't do it. We're all here. And the jailer is amazed. Why would men with the opportunity for freedom not leave? And Paul preaches the gospel. And in Acts 16.31, the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And, and Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he baptizes them that night. Not only him, but his entire family. Well, word gets out that they've beaten Roman citizens. 
You can't beat Roman citizens. In the Roman Empire, just as in America, we have due process for all our citizens. We have rights. And the Philippian uh, magistrates learn that they have beaten, without a trial, Roman citizens. And they freak out. Hey, hey, we've done wrong, so we need to release these guys. So they go to the Philippian jailer and they say, hey, let them go, but just tell them they got to leave. And Paul says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. I deserve an apology. You come and you take me out so everybody knows I'm not a criminal and I will go. And so they leave. And where do they go? The, The scriptures tell us that they head off from Uh, Philippi to Thessalonica. Go back to the slide real quick. To Thessalonica. And uh, on the the map, help me out with the map. Is it gone? There we go. From from Philippi, they go to Thessalonica, and they start preaching. That's where 1 and 2 Thessalonians comes from, Thessalonica. And so they find themselves in Thessalonica. They start preaching the word. People come to know Christ. They're changed, and what happens? The same thing as in Philippi. A mob comes to beat them and and kick them out of the city. The Thessalonican people find out that this is going to happen, and they send Paul out in the middle of the night so that he is not abused again. He goes to the city of Berea, which is a neighboring community, preaches the gospel. We hear and learn of the Bereans being a, a noble bunch because they validate the teaching of Paul through the scriptures. And what happens there? Guys from Thessalonica show back up, and they start raising a rabble again. What does this all teach us? It teaches us about what ministry looks like. You see, we get this idea in the scriptures that ministry just, everything went well for them. And it should go well for us. But listen, ministry is a series of ups and downs. Mountain peak opportunities and, and, and in, the sh- in the valley of the shadow of death. They would go from great peaks to great depths all in a matter of moments. And many of us think that when ministry is hard, When ministry, when we hit a dead end, we come to the conclusion we have, listen to me, an open door theology when it comes to the will and plan of God. We think that God only works through open doors. And so we're always looking for the escape hatch when we come to a door that is closed. Listen to me, many times the closed door is the exact place you should be. God will open his door when he is good and ready. And some of us are plowing through doors. Some of us are looking for other open doors, thinking that God only works through open doors. God works through closed doors as he does open doors. And maybe right now you're in the hallway of of a trial or tribulation, and you're saying, obviously I must be out of the will of God. You are smack dab in the middle of it. Paul would say as he leaves Thessalonica to Berea, He heads to Athens and then Corinth, and in in Corinth he says that he has come to them with weakness, with great fear and trembling. He was a broken man, and that's why he's going to gush over these people in Thessalonica. A reminder so that we can have greater context as to what we're going to study in the days to come. Now i got to get moving here, I'm running out of time. We've got to remember the people in place that received the letter. Now we know who the guy is in the context of what's going on in his life and in the life of his, his associates. we got to remember who he's writing to. The text tells us back in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians that it's written to the church of the Thessalonians. What do we need to know about it? First of all, this is very important. As we approach this series, as we do every other book of the Bible, listen to me, very important. We are reading other people's mail. Okay? We went to the mailbox of the Thessalonians and we grabbed the letter in their mailbox. We opened it up and we are reading it. 
And so we need to recognize any good preaching that takes place, and it's something, listen, that's missing in churches today, is this idea that the original audience and the original times don't matter. So we read from a text, and a pastor simply goes to the application. And he says, okay, here's how you apply it. Here's the problem. You'll have faster sermons that way but you'll miss the entire reason on why it was written. And many reasons why people are immature Christians is because they're simply applying messages that are connected to nothing. And so what happens is the pulpit becomes a Dr. Phil show instead of the preaching and proclamation of the word of God. We are reading a letter written to the Thessalonians. We need to know who they are, where they lived, why they were enduring some of the things they were enduring, who was writing to them. And once we've done our hard work of exposing the scripture for what it is, we then apply what is uh, applicable to our lives. So where do they live? Notice the location. They're in Thessalonica, a city in the northeastern part of the modern-day country of Greece. Thessalonica was founded four centuries before Christ. It was eventually given the name Thessalonica after Alexander the Great's half-sister who was also his wife. Everybody say, ew. Okay? By the time of Paul's writing, Thessalonica had grown to be a city of about 200,000 people, about the size of the city of Aurora. Okay? Uh, Today, Thessalonica is the second largest city in all of Greece, still by the same name. You can go to Thessalonica today. You You can grab a flight. You'll probably have to connect from Athens to Thessalonica. But you can fly into Thessalonica. Right now, it's a city of about 300,000 people with a metro area of almost a million. It's a city that is happening and bustling today. It's a strategic community. It was sitting on the coastal city uh, of a, a large body of water. It allowed for trade from its ports to all over the known world. It wasn't just known for its seafaring ability as a coastal city, but it also had within it, in the middle of Thessalonica, uh, a roadway called the Via Ignatia, the largest highway in all of the Roman Empire. It took you from Rome down through Greece all the way to the Far East. And so this was a strategic city because if the church was doing what it was supposed to, people would come into the city of Thessalonica on their way to the farmost parts of the world and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be changed. Notice the lifestyle. The city was predominantly Greek. And with it came all sorts of polytheism. The famed Mount Olympus can be seen from almost every part of the city of Thessalonica. And because of that, a wonderful symbol of the saturation of Greek mythology and the life and times of the Greek gods would play in this city. We're told that there was a decent number of Jews in the city. There was a synagogue. You can't have a synagogue without some large number of Jews in the area. And we're told in Acts 17 that this is where Paul would first preach the gospel in Thessalonica in the city. I'm sorry, in the synagogue. We learned that there was also all sorts of other individuals. So think about it. You have a city filled with all sorts of people, backgrounds, customs, understandings about who God is. And Paul, for a short time, is able to share the good news of Jesus and to teach them who they are. We learn a little bit about their lifestyle. They were an idolatrous group of people. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
They were an immoral group of people. In chapter 3, we see that, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 4, they are told in verse 4 that each one of you should know how to control his his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so they are uh, people who are idolatrous and they are immoral. Let me tell you something. Thessalonica is no different than America today. Idolatrous and immoral. And so the words that we are going to apply from this, we could apply to Hinkley and, and Aurora and Sugar Grove and New York and Chicago and L.A. We could apply this because many of the same sins that are going on in this uh, place are going on in the world that we live in. So we know the location. We know the lifestyle. Now let's pivot to the final point, and that is recognizing the purpose. What's the purpose of the letter? What calls Paul to write this letter? Let's remember Paul has limited time with them, and he has to leave under duress in the middle of the night. Never able to say his goodbyes, never parting thoughts. And while he's away, he pens these words and sends uh, Timothy and Silas to give these words to them. And as he puts ink to parchment, he tells them to continue in godliness. How do we do this? Let me close with the minutes that I have left with three purposes that he gives. Number one. He writes these letters to encourage Christians to grow in their walk. There are two ways that you can motivate people as a leader. First, you can just demand them and be a dictator and tell them all the consequences that come when they don't follow your commands. Paul doesn't do this. He does the second. And that is love on them. Minister to them. Lead them by example. Give them something to imitate. And encourage them all the way. Paul writes a letter gushing about the love he has for the people. Follow with me. Notice in chapter 1, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you. We're praying for you, verse 2 says, in our prayers. He goes on and he says that you, in verse 4, are loved by God, that he chose you. In verse uh, 7, he says, you have become an example. He goes on in chapter 2, in cha- chapter two verse 8, and says you we affectionately are affectionately desirous of you. We, we love you. And, and notice he says that we exhorted each of you and encouraged you in chapter 2, verse 12. He goes on in verse uh, seven, or 18, 17 of chapter 2. We desire to see you face to face. We want to come to you, verse 18 says. He says in verse, uh, let's see here, verse 6 of chapter 3. That we have been brought good news by Timothy of your faith. Encouragement, encouragement, encouragement. Let me take a moment and tell you that as the year 2016 comes about, I am encouraged and the elders are encouraged at the growth, humility, and maturity that this church continues to show. We were at uh, the funeral yesterday for Bob Malik and a, and a, uh, a person that used to attend Village years ago came. And he said, you know, one thing I want to tell you, I want to encourage you, Pastor. I remember back in the day when we were attending Village, all the news that came out of Village was bad news. Disharmony, disunity, uh, troubles, uh, pastors coming in, pastors going out. And he says, for the last 10, 12 years, he says, all I hear about Village in the community is good stuff. You've got a great name in the community. Keep it up. That's not because of me. That's not because of your pastoral staff. That is because of you. You're doing a good work. Be encouraged. 
Now, don't let that turn to pride. Don't let that begin to think that you're doing that without the work of grace and and God in your life. Be aware of that. And so Paul says, okay, I want to encourage you. You're doing a good job, Thessalonica. You're doing a good job, Village Bible Church. But the second purpose is to create a spirit of endurance no matter what we face. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to learn Paul is going to defend himself against the accusations of his detractors. And he's going to speak of hard work and determination. He's going to say, I'm going to stay the course amidst the beatings and the horrible events that have happened in my life. Even though mobs come across and and attack me, though I have hardships all around me, he says, I am going to work hard. He says, you've seen me work hard. He's going to talk about uh, the great difficulty it is, and I, I recognize this now more than ever, the great difficulty of being a pastor and also having another job. That's Apostle Paul in the church of Thessalonica. He preached the gospel by day and made tents by night. And so he's working hard. And he says, I know you're doing a good job, but trouble's going to come. Hardships are going to be experienced by you. And keep working hard. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he commands all of us to not grow idle, but work hard unto the Lord and for the gospel. So keep up the good work is what he's saying. Don't stop serving. Number three, he's going to instill a hopeful expectation for the future. The Apostle Paul is going to address issues of eschatology, the doctrine of end times or last things. He's going to talk about things like the second coming of Jesus. He's going to talk about the rising of the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. He's going to talk about times of tribulation in this series. And listen, he is not going to do it like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? What's going to happen? He doesn't give times and dates. He doesn't sit there and look to the newspaper to figure out when these times and dates are going to come. He does it with a hopeful expectation, knowing in 2 Thessalonians that Jesus Christ is coming back. And because he says he's coming back, he will do just as he says. And so we too will live in bleak times. We too are given to the idea that evil is advancing and persecution is growing around the world. And we're starting to taste some of that even here in this country. And Paul's words are not alarmist in nature. Even though we may be scared, even though we may feel hopeless, Paul gives the idea that the end times are not a time to be worried and fearful, but of times that with each day we draw closer to being with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so he tells us at the end of the letter, in, in 2 in second, uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, that the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. We don't need to fret. We don't need to be worried. In fact, he tells the people that the very essence of living in the end times should cause us to encourage one another. Every day, we're another Sabbath day closer to the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? We're closer to glory. And so we don't need to worry about the man of lawlessness. We don't need to worry about tribulation. We don't need to worry about persecution. Those times will come, and those times we may experience. And as a result of that, it will grow our faith because the Lord of comfort will comfort us in those moments. But what we need to do is continue to work hard and hasten the day of the Lord's coming. So he finishes verse 1, and he says, To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. What a fitting way to end the first verse of our study. 
How many of us in 2016, in the first work week of the year, could use grace and peace? Let's see a show of hands. Who could use grace and peace this year? Amen? Well, let me take our time and close and give that as our prayer as we close out this introduction. Father God, we come before you and we ask, just as you gave to the Thessalonican church, grace and peace from our Lord our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. By your Spirit, Lord, empower us and fill us that we might be filled with that peace, that we might be filled with that grace, so that we may be ready with the strength for today and the hope for tomorrow. Now lead us now into a new year, into a new work week, with that strength and with that hope, so that we might encourage the believers around us that we might evangelize the unbelievers that live and work amongst us and that we may exalt the God who has saved us. Now send us forth in fellowship now that we may love one another and serve one another and spur one another on towards love and good deeds. It is in Christ's name we pray all of this. Amen.